I think I heard prayers like that many, many times. Lord, we're going to just join uh, together and ask that you be with us again as we come back to this word that you give us in the book of Romans. And it's a, it's a thick word. It's one that gets us really thinking about the world we live in, ourselves, who we are, how we perceive ourselves, how we perceive your grace, uh, how we give that away. Lord, uh, as we open up these words today, just use them to, uh, to guide us into to thinking a little bit more deeply about our faith and, and what it means to follow you. Just pray that in, in Jesus' name as we gather together. Let's say it together. Amen. Okay. So I want to come back over to um, the very top of this section of, of Romans. Uh, we're in chapter 1. We're beginning in verse 18. The whole front end of, of the introduction to the churches in Rome is, is kind of completed. And, and Paul is moving on. And the one thing that he says that just kind of, um, you know, captures me is this idea uh, of obligation. Uh, in verse 14, he, he uses this term, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, to the wise and to the foolish. And I think about that term, and uh, it literally means a, a debt obligation. Uh, so I, I think of my own life, and what does it mean that... Um, I live in a world that's constantly telling me, you need to figure out what you want to do. You need to figure out what's going to make you happy. You need to figure out, um, you know, what are you passionate about and go pursue that. That's, that's 99% of what we're going to hear from our, our world, right? And, and to some extent, you, you kind of get sucked into that. You're like, oh, um, I'm, I'm part of a group this year with Pastor Carl. Uh, that we're, we're looking at some writings of a, a couple of different people right now. Uh, one, one guy, Michael Hyatt, is a very successful publisher, um, bloggist, um, entrepreneurial coach. And, and he, he talks to you about, you need to find your passion. And, and then you need to figure out what are you passionate about and what, what, are, you, what are you proficient at. And, and he kind of takes, if you remember Stephen Covey, you know, uses this four-quadrant way of looking at, at, at life. You know, what, what's, what's important but not urgent, what's urgent but not important, et cetera, et cetera. He does that, but he says, let's do it with proficiency. And what are you passionate and proficient at? That's what you need to be doing. That's not all wrong, but I, as a Christian, I pull back and I'm like, wait a minute. Where's God in it? Do you think that Paul woke up one day and said, I need, I need to read this book, and I need to figure out what my passions and proficiencies are, and I need to go get those things done. No. Paul was put to death on a road. You die to yourself. And when you're raised up a new person, you join me on this, this, this road that will lead you through life in a much different way than the world thinks. It's no longer about what, what am I passionate about, but when I come into relationship with Jesus... His pasak, his passions, become my passions. And I really surrender to him. God, what do you want me to do? And you know what I find? I have found that there are times that God leads, at least me, into things that I would not write down on a list. Hey, I'm really passionate and proficient about this. In fact, to be really honest with you, the things that God has called me to more so than anything else, I would look at him and say, I'm scared to death to do that, not passionate about it. 
And my proficiency in that, it's the opposite of who I am. And I think that the point of it is, at least for my life is, I notice how God takes me and says, this is what I want you to do, and I'm going to put you in a place that you must be utterly dependent upon me to actually carry this, this out. You can't depend upon your skills. You can't depend upon your abilities. You're going to have to depend upon me. So I, I take that word seriously. You know, Paul's saying, I'm under a debt obligation to, to, to Greeks, to people who, as a, as a Jew, I've learned to hate. I'm under a debt obligation to you. I'm under a debt obligation to barbarians. We talked about that term doesn't mean, you know, cavemen. It just means people outside of the Roman Greco world at that time. People that would be looked upon as, um, you want to exclude those people from your life. No, Paul says, I'm under a debt obligation to them. To do what? To bring the gospel. To bring the story of salvation. To help people also be put to death and raised up a new, a new person and so, God, I'm, I'm not going to, to follow my plan anymore. I had a plan. Paul had a plan. He was, he was a very skilled, skilled orator, educated, up and coming in the, in the pharisaical ranks. He had a plan. I'm going to go to the top. All that died on the road to Damascus. And now, all of a sudden, I'm, I'm under a debt obligation to give my life away to people who I was taught to hate. And, and now, under the passion of Jesus Christ, I'm going to love in a way that seeks to bring this, this story of salvation into their lives. Make, make known to them that this is your story. This is your story. And so, uh, here Paul is saying, the way I'm going to do that is through this, this gospel of Jesus Christ. That's, that, that's my power, and I'm going to go out, and under, under this debt obligation, I'm going to live that out. When we get to verse 18, and we, we spent a little bit of time in this last week, um, Paul says something that I, I think probably becomes um, pretty unpopular in his time, definitely unpopular in, in our time. So this gospel, this story of salvation, can't become real to you or really has no meaning to you until you, you yourself are broken. Right, and so Paul begins to talk to the to the to the people of the churches in Rome about how God is making Himself known, and he uses this term, verse eighteen. He says, "The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men." So, how is God making Himself known? How are we going to get this gospel story into you? Well, it's going to start off with this word, wrath. Okay, unpopular word in our world today. You know, most, most people, when you talk to, to folks about religion or God or Christianity, we want God to be this loving, uh, kind, merciful God. Well, he is. But you know what? I really don't need his love, his kindness, or his mercy, apart from recognizing who I am as a sinner. Right? Last week, we said the, the thing that made Billy Graham, Billy Graham, that made him so successful is he refused to water down the gospel, he always began with the law. He would always start off here. There's a, there's a God of wrath who, who hates sin. How many of you have heard this phrase? He, he hates sin, but he, he doesn't hate the sinner. Well, God hates sin. He doesn't hate people, right? 
I, I love this person that I created. I want them to, to spend eternity with me. But that doesn't mean that that person who is under sin and apart from the gospel won't spend eternity in hell. They will, apart from a relationship with God. And so, so this is what Paul is trying to say is God, God's trying to, and the word, word we used last week, apocalypto, uncover, uneclipse the reality that we are under the wrath of God. But we don't want to hear it. We don't want to hear it. And so let, let's kind of pick up with this, this next uh, word, the second half of verse 18. God's wrath is being revealed against ungodliness and against unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. I've always found that word to be kind of interesting to me. Um, the term that's used here is kata ekoton. And um, kata means to, towards something. Ekos is to, to have. And so when you put it together, uh, the term suppressing literally, in a raw way, could be translated against having. So let me say it this way. God's, God's wrath, his law, is being revealed to people who, through their ungodliness and unrighteousness, are, are without having, without having the truth. I don't want the truth. I don't want to have that. Why? Why don't I want to have that truth? Because I, I want to be who I want to be. I want to do what I want to do. This takes us all the way back to the garden, right? Uh, Adam and Eve. And there's our enemy. And what is the enemy saying? Why should you be under the thumb of this God? Why should that happen to you? You know what? I'll tell you what. He knows, this God who put you in this garden, he knows that if you eat this fruit, you'll become like him. You can be your own God. You can know what's right and what's wrong. How dare you tell me what's right and what's wrong? I'll tell you what's right and what's wrong. And so literally inside of us is this, this old Adam that seeks to say, I am against having the truth in my life. I'm against it. I don't want it because I want to be my own God. Okay? I shared this with, this is kind of interesting, but right now I'm, I'm, I'm about two-thirds of the way through this book now um, that is, is the story of, a, of a, a pop artist named Elton John. Um, and I'm not ashamed to admit that back when I was in high school, I, I liked some of, some of Elton John's songs. Any of you guys? Any Elton John folks? Yeah. It's a little bit funny. Remember that? Your song? Um, so it's interesting hearing now the background to, to someone, some of these songs. Someone saved my life tonight. It's a song written because somebody helped prevent Elton John from, from marrying a, a woman in order to help him understand that you're, you're not that. You're, you're gay. Now that song doesn't sound the same to me at all. I'm like, yeah, oh, what is that song? Okay. So in his, in his book, and he's talking about his, his life, he talks about, um, about the church. And uh, it's my contention that in this book, and this is very typical, he becomes a preacher. I'm no longer a pop artist. I'm a theologian. I'm going to tell you some theology. And he actually makes a judgment against the church. He says, here's what the church is doing. Here I am gay, and the church is telling me that's wrong. Here I am gay, and my friends are dying of HIV. And the church is over here 
just condemning them, saying, well, here's what's going on, is God's wrath is being revealed against ungodliness. How dare you say that to me or to my friends? What a horrible thing to say. And there's two sides to this thing. On one hand, when any of us as the church set ourselves above another person and make judgment against them, when we do that, it's not good. It's not, it's not what God calls us to. Me, Luke, is my sin any less than the sin of somebody who is gay and dying of HIV? No, it's not. We're on equal ground. We're both under the wrath of God. We're under it, right? Um, so I think that, that sometimes when the church makes statements like, this is God's wrath being revealed against you, it is, and yet the way, we, the way we say that is important, right? We don't say it as people who are judgmental, like standing above you, and you people over there, you're the yuck stuff, and we're the good people over here. We say it on equal ground. Actually, here's the, here's the reality. We're all under his wrath. He's revealing it against it. When I sin, our, our God is loving enough that he does not just sit back in heaven and say, oh, well, I guess they're going to be their own God. What kind, of, what kind of God would that be? He's loving enough that when I sin, he goes, okay, Luke, there's some consequence coming. And it hurts. And I think, God, why, are you, why would you do that to me? God says, because I, I want to break you. You want to break me? How, that, well, you're supposed to be a loving, kind God. That is love. Which is worse, that I, that I say nothing, do nothing, sit back here in heaven and go, oh, well, you chose to sin, and then you, your soul goes to hell for eternity? Or I say to you, listen, I want you to know this is not good, this is not right. Okay? During um, my college years, my first year I spent at Trinity University in, in San Antonio, I'm going to actually take a sip of this because Pat tells me we count the number of times that you lift your coffee cup up and don't actually take a sip. I'm like, well, thanks. I know how you're paying attention in class. It's 15 today. You got 15 of them in there. I was sitting in a Spanish class and uh, the profesora está hablando solamente en español y la persona... Uh, the, the guy sitting next to me he's got big old eyes like this and he says to me can you understand what the teacher's saying I'm like uh, yeah can't you he's like I can't understand a word of it I said you need to get into a different class right <laughs> his name was Charles Charles uh, said to me shortly thereafter hey um, I'm gay but I'm having I'm having thoughts about it I'm not sure that this is what I'm supposed to be. I said, okay. And uh, he said, would you, would you walk with me through some, some of the stuff that I'm going through? I'm like, yeah, I will. I'll walk with you through that. I didn't realize at the time I said that I, w- I would pay a big price for that because you, you, when you associate with somebody who's, you're, you're gay, then you're gay, right? Well, not. And, and so I got to feel some of what he probably felt. Through that journey with him, what I learned is he, he really did wrestle with some things and the wrath of God was being shown in his life. There would be days he'd come to me and this is a problem that I'm having. I'm like, mm-hmm. what does that mean? You're having this problem. 
Well, it's, it's, it's a relational problem. I'm like, mm-hmm. Why are you having this problem? Is this relationship right? Is it good? Or is there something broken about it? He would come to me, hey, I'm having to deal with this this medical issue because of what goes on. And I'm like, oh. I'd be like, so does that seem normal to you? Because I, I never will have to deal with that issue. That'll never be an issue in my life. Does that seem normal to you? Well, it's, it's just, I'm like, no. Sexually transmitted diseases don't happen inside of the lives of people who are living out God's way. They don't. They happen in the lives of people who are choosing, I'm going to be my own God. I'm going to do it my way. This has always been true. What is that? That's the wrath of God. It's a God of mercy and love who has wrath that is meant to cause us to say, something's really wrong here. And the, and the truth is, yeah, something is really wrong here. The world will always kalupto, cover that up, make it seem right. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, including, if I can include in that, that general category of the world, including the secular church, which uh, exists in spades in our world today. And the secular church is, is what? This is, this is okay. There's nothing wrong with that. That's fine. This is okay. This is good. No, it's not. And so we're pushing away. I am against having kata ectone, the truth. I don't want it. Because the minute I have the truth, what does it do to me? It puts me in a position where I'm no longer God. I need a God. I have to have a God. And so what Paul is trying to do, he's trying to paint a picture here of what is it going to mean, churches in Rome, to take the gospel out. Well, it's going to mean that we're going out into a world where God's already at work in front of us. And he's always at work in front of us. And one of the beautiful things that God is doing is he's exhibiting his wrath while people push back against it. He continues to do it because I want to break people and I want to have people come to know truth. And they can only do that, not through the law, but through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, can I know anything about God apart from the gospel? Well, you actually can. Go to verse 19. He says, now, in, these, in the lives of people suppressing the truth, what can be known about God is plain. It's plain to them because God has shown it to them. In other words, you can't look at people and say, well, they just, they don't know it about God. And so they're just, they're acting, they're acting out of ignorance. No, what can be known about God is plain. Why? Because God has shown it to us. Now the word known there, pretty significant. What can be known is the term gnosis in contrast to the Greek term oidos. And as in Acts, so in Romans, the differentiation is this, I can know something without knowing it. Right? I can know something without knowing it. I can have, I can have knowledge of something, but not spiritual knowledge of it. Okay? So this is why we're able to say, our enemy, Satan, knows God. He knows the Ten Commandments. He, know, he, knows, he knows Jesus. He knows him very, very well. He just doesn't know him. Right? He's apart from faith. And so what we're saying here is, listen, you have people suppressing the truth. 
God is revealing his wrath, and he's also shown him himself to people. So what has he shown us? This is interesting. Keep, keep looking at this. He says his invisible attributes are known. There's things that we can attribute to God's character. There's things we can attribute to God's person that become known through what God shows us about himself. Um, God's power can be known apart from faith, apart from, apart from even the, the Bible. God says, I'm going to make some things known to you. I'm a powerful God. Um, his divine nature, the fact that there's an, an ongoing, everlasting God can be known. In fact, these things have been, as Paul says here, clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Okay? So way back when I was in, in confirmation, I remember our pastor came up with this, this way to, to, to say it. He says, um, if you think about it, there's three different things that God is doing to make himself known. All right? um, the first one is, He's, he's kind of put around this nature. And if you actually look at nature, you begin to discover some of the divine attributes of God. Is, God. is God a God of chaos and disorder? No. There's not one thing in our world today that is chaotic and disorderly. It's very ordered. From the, from the minutest piece of, a, of an atom to, to the, the, the grandest part of our solar system and beyond, there is a very orderly God at work. I can know that about him. Okay? His divine power. If I, if, I, if I don't suppress the truth, like I, I don't have the truth, just look around you at creation. Right? What do you see? Something that just kind of erupted? So that it just kind of became God here? One of the great deceptions of our time you know here on on earth is this idea that oh yeah yeah we all got here by just chance right um this was a hard this was a hard thing for me back when i was in in high school that's probably the thing i wrestled with the most uh during my um junior high high school years i went to school this is how, this is science. This is how we got here. This is how the universe came about. This is what evolution is. I learned that stuff, then I'd go to Sunday school. I'd sit in Sunday school, and the teacher would be like, well, no, God created the world. They didn't say that in my science class. I know, but that's, this is God created it. In six days. Six days, well, we've got rocks that are like, 10 billion years old. So, like, are you, are you, are you missing all, like a, some marbles? Or what's wrong with you? You're going to tell me that uh, God created a world in, in six days and I've got this rock that's 10 billion years old. Besides that, we, we, have, we have fossils, right? I mean, we can kind of track through these fossils. So, um, I would, I would be the kid in the back of the room saying, excuse me, but can somebody help me understand how we have like a 10 billion year old rock and then you're telling me that God made this thing in, in six days? Now, my Sunday school teachers, I don't know about yours, but mine always had the same answer, right? Their answer was always what? The Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. And so for me, it was not very, it wasn't helpful. I would say, 
Okay, that settles it for you, but not for me because I can't do that. I can't just walk away and say, yep, that's it. In the face of these contradictions, there's contradic contradictions. The biggest mistake, I think, this is just me personally, you may disagree with me and that's okay, but the biggest mistake I think that the church made during this, this epoch is to then kind of backpedal a little bit and say, well, maybe he didn't make it in six days. Maybe, maybe it did take him 10 billion years. And maybe what he did is God kind of started the process of evolution and got it going and then man evolved and the world came about It's 10 billion years old. I think that's probably the biggest mistake the church ever made, personally. Why would you do that? Are you saying, no, God can't make a world in six days? Is that what you're saying? You can absolutely tell me that rock is 10 billion years old? You can? Really? And it took me a long time before I finally met somebody who said, oh, let's talk about rocks. Let's talk about them, okay? You can't carbon date them because they never breathed, right? So how are you going to tell how old a rock is? So the only way you're going to be able to tell how old a rock is is you're going to have to use radioactive dating. You're going to crack that sucker open. You're going to find some radioactive material. You're going to be able to know the half-life of that thing. And based upon that half-life, you can kind of predict predicate how old the rock is. I'm like, oh. So there's a certain amount of uranium in this rock that used to be lead, and I can determine the exact amount of time it takes for lead to become uranium, and now I can figure out how old that rock is. That's right. So I have a question for you. What if it was created with uranium in it? Um, that would throw the dating off? By how much? Perhaps billions of years? I'm like, well, then you're telling me you're a scientist. And you're, what you're saying to me is that you're predicating your science upon a formula that's absolute. Isn't that take faith to believe that? I don't have that much faith. Because the only faith I have goes back to this book where this God said, I made it in six days. And I think I'm going to believe that. But I'll tell you what. The day you, Mr. Smart Scientist, can create a sun and hang it up in the air on nothing, I'll worship you. But until then, I'm sticking with this book right here. Okay? No wonder my teachers didn't like me. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't that bold. But I'll tell you, it, it was hard for me. But what, what are we saying? Pay attention to the world around you. Look at what God did. This has always been fun for me, but when you look at the word to create, it's a beautiful word in the Greek. It's a word is poema. We get our English term poem from this term. God poetried the world into being. And what I love about that is when you read poetry, there's a rhythm to it. There's a, there's a, a, um, a pattern to it. And I think, isn't it kind of beautiful that God patterned this world in a way where we ought to be able to look at it and to say to ourselves, someone powerful and someone, someone divine created this thing. Whether you can name God or not, you should be able to at least know that there is a God. This is what Paul is saying is, individuals, individuals need the gospel. But what are we doing? 
we're fighting as hard as we can to, to not have it because we want to be God despite the fact that God through nature, you know what the sea is? And through our conscience has told us I exist. Here's an interesting fact. Every human being born into this world has patterned into them the Ten Commandments, the law of God. Have it. Is it perfectly patterned? No, it's not. Why? Because of the fall. It's corrupted. And yet, what we've been able to demonstrate sociologically is across the globe, a persistent pattern in which people are able to name, in one way or another, culturally, the Ten Commandments. This isn't right. This is wrong. This is bad. We know that. How? How do you know that? What tells you that? God's saying, you should know that I exist. The last letter here is the one that's an anomaly, and it's the letter B, and it's the word Bible. Because ultimately, Romans will tell us it's through the Bible, it's through the Word of God, it's through the power of the gospel that people will come not just to know who God is, but now to know who God is. Now, does that mean that everybody who reads the Bible just accepts it? No, it does not. I can still fight against it. I can still suppress it. I can read something that's as plain as day. I often find myself saying this. How can you read this passage and come up with this conclusion? How can you do that? Well, the answer is very simple. Just suppress it. You can make it sound fancy. Oh, no, that's not what that means. No, no, that is not what this means. So, somebody reads this book of Romans, and we'll, we'll get into it here in this first chapter, and says, well, yeah, it seems like it says that, but no, no, here's what it really means. And our enemy is so good at trying to help us push away this gospel of Jesus Christ. We are continuously doing it. Now, here are the hard words. I want you to hear, and we'll, we'll kind of finish off with these, but to me, they're some of the hardest words in the whole Bible. Here's Paul he's talking about. Here's what's going on. I'm, I, I am I'm under obligation, debt obligation, to bring the gospel to people. This starts with the law. People understanding I'm under the law. It starts with God's wrath. It starts with the God who's made himself known. But people push it away. And are they going to be held accountable? Look at these words. So that they are without excuse. Hard words. By the way, this is, this is kind of interesting. To be without excuse, apo legutu. Apo, away from, logos, the word. Here's what it literally means. So that they have no word to stand on. That's what it means to be without excuse. It means that when the judgment day comes and I stand before God, I have no word to stand upon. Why did you do this? You rejected my word. Why did you live this way? You rejected my, my, my commandments. Why did you do this? Uh, blah, 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 blah. I have, I have no word to stand on. I can try to stand on my own words. Well, I just didn't know. I thought this was the way it was supposed to be. You have no word to stand upon. What that sentence does, that one simple sentence does, is it makes 
hell real. And I, I've kind of had it with the secular Christian church's propensity to erase hell from the Bible and pretend that it's not real. Because the minute you erase hell, you erase the need for Jesus Christ. You do. I don't, I don't need Jesus. I mean, at most I need him so I can have some, some happy life. But that's not what this book is about. It's about heaven and about hell and about souls and about eternity. And it's about a God who is saying, when I stand before a judgment seat, if I have pushed the truth away and I've chosen to be my own God, I can stand there, but I have no word to stand upon. Because there's only one word upon which one can stand before the judgment seat, and that is the word who became flesh, who we have a relationship with, Jesus Christ, and I stand in him covered, all of my faults, all of my sins, covered by him. To me, those words are, are, are just critical for us to, to get as the Christian church today, to not fall prey to a world that continuously wants us to believe that God, God is just loving, and kind and merciful and no matter how you've lived or what you've done you know what when you die you're just going God's going to absorb you into heaven unless maybe you were really 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 bad uh, then maybe there's no place for you but the average person we're going we're going to heaven no our work Paul's work is to do what he's saying to the church in Rome you're going out and our work is to bring this gospel out to people's lives in a way that helps us understand there's a reason that things don't seem right in our lives. We're pushing God's truth away. And it will ultimately lead us to hell. And there is one hope, and it's the word upon which we stand. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. We'll see the impact of persistently pushing the truth of God away here next week. Let's pray. Lord God, as we gather together. These are, are in some ways just really hard words, especially when we think about people in our own lives um, who we're not going to judge them, Lord. That's yours to do, but they, the fruits say they're pushing your, they're pushing your truth away. Don't want it. There's a hell. And there's also a heaven. There's wrath, but there's also love. And the two, strangely, intention go together. Lord, help us to be a people who speak truth, but speak truth in love. We pray in Jesus' name.